Good morning. This morning we're going to read Luke 2, 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Thank you. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I am one of the pastors here, along with Heather and Lydia. If you're new, it's so good to have you. And if you are new, somewhere near you, there should be a little card on your seat that says Connect. If you'd like more information about the community, you want to get connected, you want to find out about midweek groups, or just learn a little bit about us, you can fill that out. And then at the end of service, there will be someone kind of in the lobby by the Connect table who would love to chat with you, get you connected, answer any questions. And yeah, great. Well, as you can tell from the reading and from the decorations around us, we are in the season of Advent or the Christmas season. And we said last week that Advent, and Christmas in many ways, but Advent is a season of remembering, celebrating, anticipating, reflecting on the gift of God to the world. That very famous passage in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And in the season of Advent, what we get to do is reflect on the gift of Christ to us. But something that we often forget about when we tell a gift story is that there are more than one side to a gift narrative. On one side of the gift story is the person who gives a gift. It's the intentions or the hopes or the expectations of the one who gives a gift. I will go, I'll buy you something, I'll put all these thoughts into it, all this energy into it, and then I'll give you the gift. But that begins another part of the narrative, which is what do you do with the gift that I've given you? Gift-giving is a pretty vulnerable act because you get to decide how you respond to the gift that has been given. I might give you something that has a lot of value to me, but if it has no value to you, it's not a very valuable gift. I feel like this is one of the things that's tricky about the older you get. It's like harder to buy gifts for people who are older because you're like, I don't know, they buy themselves whatever they want. So how do I give them something of value when they're just going to buy it themselves? Here's a sweater. Now, there's two sides to any gift-giving story. There is the story of the gift, the story of the giving, and then there is the story of the reception. 
And the thing that is very beautiful about the Advent season is that it invites us to reflect on both. The giving of a gift, that God so loved his, the world that he gave his one and only son, that we get this gift that is marvelous and beyond value. But throughout the Advent story, we're also called to enter into the stories of people who receive the gift of Advent. These very human, very real people who have to wrestle with the gift that's just been given to them. And though it is a good and beautiful gift that is given to them, it demands something of them. It calls them into something. It radically reorients their life. Often good gifts do that. They change something about the world around us. A child is a good gift, but it changes everything. And so when these people receive the good gift, it changes so much about life for them. And they have to wrestle with, how do we respond to the gift that we are being given? Last week, we looked at the story of Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. And it is both a gift of a child that she is being given and also the gift of Jesus, who is the Savior that she is being given. And she has to wrestle with, what does it mean for me to respond to this gift? Because it could cost me a lot to be a single mother in the ancient Near East. Throughout these stories, we will sometimes see people who respond really beautifully to the gift. Mary responds really beautifully to the gift. She chooses to trust God that it would be a good gift. In a few weeks, though, we're going to look at the story of Herod, who is the puppet king of the region in which Jesus is born. And when Herod hears rumor that this gift is coming, well, his response is very much the opposite of Mary's. It is one of fear and scarcity and violence, which is another way that we can respond to good gifts that invite us into something. Today, though, the story that we are looking at is the story of the shepherds who hear the announcement of God's gift to them. If you're familiar with the story or you just remember it from the reading today, there is these shepherds who are in a field, and a bunch of angels or holy messengers appear to the shepherds who are working in the field. And as the angels arrive, as with all of the men in this story, they are terrified. And the angel says to them in verse 10 this. The angel said, Do not be afraid. Look, I bring good news to you. Wonderful, joyous news for all people. Shepherds are in the field working, and these messengers arrive declaring news of a coming gift. And they say it is a good news gift, a wonderful gift, a joyous gift. That phrase, good news, whenever it shows up in the New Testament, we have to pay attention to it. It's a real important phrase throughout the scriptures. And it comes from the Greek word euangelion, which we translate often as evangelion. It might sound like evangelism. And it is used throughout the ancient world to describe news that's very big. So good news can be that you got a promotion, but normally this word is used to describe something even bigger. Like if a victory over an army was won, you would declare the good news of the victory. If an emperor was about to take the throne, you would declare the good news of this like political change in the universe. If something world-altering or 
economy-altering or social-altering was happening, you would declare the good news of that event. An emperor is taking the throne, a war is being won, maybe even a king is being born. Is that good news? In Old English, good news, uh, euangelion is translated into the phrase in Old English, Godspell. If you have any musical theater nerds in the room, you might know the musical, Godspell. <laughs> Ooh, whoa, more than I thought. Whoa, you nerds. I can say that as one of you. And then Godspell in modern English becomes the phrase that you might be more familiar with, Gospel. Good news story, big announcement story, world-altering, life-changing kind of story. That's the moment that's being described in Luke chapter 2, that something huge is on the horizon. And the image that we're supposed to kind of get as we're looking at this scene isn't, sometimes it's depicted as like cute and warm and fuzzy in Christmas terms, but what it is showing us in the text is that these royal heavenly messengers have arrived on the scene, and they are declaring something that is royal, that is world-altering, social-altering, good news, king being born, kind of news. And we can see that the shepherds understand the gravity of this news almost immediately because as soon as they hear the announcement, they leave their sheep to go confirm what has been said, and then the text says that they worship and praise. So what is the good news that's being declared to the shepherds in this moment? What is that gospel that's being sung out by the angel? Well, in verse 11, they answer the question. Shepherds, today, your Savior is born in David's city. He is Christ, or the Messiah, the Lord. There are two pieces to this statement that summarize the good news that has just been declared to the shepherds. The first piece of this news is that a Savior has been born. And the second piece is that this Savior is King or Lord. Now, in an earlier story, in the Advent narrative, that we're not going to look at this series, but it's from the moment in Matthew when an angel appears to Joseph, who is going to be Jesus' adopted father, and to explain to him what is about to happen to his virgin fiancé, the angel says this, Your soon-to-be wife, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Savior, the language of Savior, the language of Messiah, the language of hero that is kind of curated throughout the New Testament and into the Old Testament, always kind of revolves around this statement, that Jesus has come to save people from their sins. Sin is a weird word. If you've grown up in the church, it might be loaded with kind of strange baggage or religious familiarity, and it might evoke any kind of set of images to you immediately when you hear the word sin. I think when I think of sin, the thing that comes to my mind the fast is, just, is like a list. Like here's a list of things, and if I don't do the list, then I have fallen into sin. That, that not doing the list or failing to accomplish the list or doing one of the things on the bad list, that that's what it looks like 
to sin. It's a failure of fulfilling the list. Maybe some of you in here have a different understanding of sin, or maybe when you hear the word sin, it evokes like feelings of being manipulated or controlled or guilted or shamed. And then that happens in the church all the time. That sin is used in a way that is coercive and harmful. But when the Bible writers talk about sin, it's really interesting and often very, very different than the way that just modern churches can talk about sin. And that's in part because sin is a—well, it's not just one word throughout Scripture. Sometimes we translate it into just the word sin, but it can actually be a whole slew of different words. There are some words in the Hebrew that are translated to sin that mean shaking your fist. There's other words that mean crooked or bent. Some words that we translate to sin just mean bad or evil, that it's trying to describe something that is bad. Some words that we translate to sin mean desolation, like a wilderness or a disease even. And in the Greek, the most common and most favorite word for sin is this word harmartia, which means to miss a target, miss a mark. And again, that does not mean to miss a few points on a test, but is more like, somebody was telling me this morning that they went bowling, this word is more like a description of if you were to, this is how you bowl, if you were to roll a ball <laughs> down, down the alley and you were to roll it right into the gutter and it was to miss its target because the ball would be misaligned from its direction. It would be bent. It would be crooked in the way that it flies, in the way that it rolls. Most often in the biblical story, when sin is described, this is how it's described, that something is misaligned. That something is off the path, that something has rolled into a direction that does not reach its intended end, that something is crooked or unstraight. Most often when the writers of the Bible talk about sin, they are talking about something that is misaligned. And one of my favorite examples of this comes in Galatians chapter 2. And in Galatians chapter 2, this is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul, and he's telling a story about doing a dinner party with a bunch of people in the city of Galatia, which is a city in Turkey. And he's doing a dinner party, and Peter, the very famous apostle, shows up to the dinner party. It's like really chill for a bit. And then as the party expands, and more than one kind of person shows up at the party, Peter gives into fear and begins to racially segregate the party. So this is a really tragic moment in the book of Galatians where the whole thing the gospel is doing is bringing different peoples, different races, different ethnicities together, and Peter doesn't do it. And Paul accuses him and says, you are out of line with the truth. You are out of step with the gospel. That there is a way in which we get to live and you have moved out of line with that way. There is a way that would lead us into community, into table fellowship, into shared camaraderie in this space. And Paul says to Peter, you have moved out of line. Your heart is misaligned with the truth of what God is doing in the world around you. You are out of step, out of line with the gospel. And this gives us a clue of what is sin in scripture. It is 
misalignment with what God is doing. It is to be misaligned with God or God's way, or as the writer of 1 John says, because God is love, you could say sin is misalignment with love. We make sin often about a list of rules, but in the biblical story, you and I were created with a purpose. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 describes us as image bearers, that we are created in God's image. We are meant to live in relationship with God and reflect that image to the world around us, reflect God's nature, God's creativity to the world around us through our own gifts, our own skills, our own belovedness, that because we are so connected, it flows out of us into the world, that we are made to be image bearers who represent God to the world. We're made to live connected to God and extending God's love everywhere around us. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright describes this really beautifully, saying this, humans were made to be image bearers, to reflect the praises of creation back to the creator and to reflect the creator's wise love and stewardship into the world. Sin is not just doing wrong things, but it is missing the target. And the target is this, wise, full human life of worship, reflection, and stewardship. Sin, then, is not some violation of a list of rules. It is more fundamentally, and this is so important for us to understand, it is a misalignment with love. A misalignment with God's purpose. Wright goes on to say this, it is living less than fully human lives. Sin is living less than fully human lives. It is moving against love. It is moving against truth. That's what Paul says to Peter. You are out of step with truth. It's moving against goodness. It is important for us to understand this if we're going to understand what it looks like for Jesus to be a Savior, for us to understand what the Bible is really describing when it says God is rescuing us from something. Because the issue is much more than just a list. And I think that's why the Bible has so many words for sin that we then translate into this kind of like general word. Because in this frame of thinking, in this understanding, sin can be an attitude. It can be an attitude that is misaligned with love. It can be an action that's misaligned with love. It can be an inaction that's misaligned with love. But it can also be a disease a sickness that communicates to us some unlovedness that then we live out of. And God would say, that's also sin, that's also brokenness, that's also this missing the mark, that you're not living a full human life and there's something eating away at you that does that. Sin can also be a spiritual force that works against God's movement, God's intentions, God's purposes in the world. And sin can be something that is in our communities, our societies, and our systems. Throughout scripture, to describe that, the biblical writers love to talk about Babylon as a kingdom of sin. And it'll use all that same language. There's a disease in Babylon, there's a poison in Babylon, there's a system at work in Babylon. All of it is misaligned, moving against love, pushing against God's intentions, moving in the way of untruth, 
ungoodness, unhuman flourishing. This is what the Bible is describing when it describes sin. All of the things that are misaligned with love. All of the things that are misaligned with God's intention, God's purposes, with human flourishing. And the shepherds in this story, they understand that immediately. And it's why they hear this news, this good news of Savior and King, because they know what it means to be saved. It means all of these things have to be dealt with. That the rot in the world and human hearts, the inactions, the systems, all of it needs to be put right. And so when they hear that a Savior is to be born, the value of the gift is felt. And so they rush to see what it is that's being declared. The shepherds know that the world feels like hell because it is far from God's love and intention. So that when they hear that a Savior is to be born, they know what it means to hope, and so they rush to see the Savior. Because it means that all the things and all the places and all the realities that are misaligned from God have to be realigned. So it means that you and I have to be realigned, which is this deeply personal and focused reality. But it also means that the world itself has to be realigned. Roman 8 says that creation, the physical world, experiences sin, the groanings and hopes of redemption. For sin to be dealt with, it means that societies and communities and systems also have to be put right, and that whatever spiritual forces work against God's intentions also must be put to end. For sin to be dealt with, the whole of it has to be healed. So to say, the shepherds understand the hope. But how is Jesus going to put all of those things right? How does Jesus save from sins? Well, that leads to the next piece of the news. He is Lord or King. To be Lord or King is a shorthand way of describing that Jesus has entered the world to set up his kingdom. And kingdom is one of the, the, the biblical writer's favorite words to put so much of what God is doing into kind of like one description. But maybe the easiest way to summarize it is that kingdom is the biblical writer's word for restoration. Kingdom describes God's restoring work because it describes that relationships are restored, that God will be with his people. It describes that God's rule will be on earth so that the creation itself will be put right. It describes that God will enact a new kingdom, which means it will put to work all the other kingdoms, right? It is about full restoration, When the biblical writers talk about king or kingdom, they're describing the restoration of God's total purposes or of God's love in the world. Kingdom describes a realigning of that which has become misaligned or anti-love. So in being king, Jesus has come to restore the world. 
to restore you and me and all of creation back to our intended center and purpose. That means to bring us back into love. To bring us back into right relationship and to restore to us our true purpose as image bearers of God. Kingdom is about relationship and vocation. That we are brought back to the center of where we are intended to be and called into something to live aligned with love in the world around us. Sometimes we miss this, that we are saved from something, sin, but to be saved from sin means to be saved into something, into a restoration of who we are intended to be. This is the good news that is declared to the shepherds. That Jesus is here to bring us back to love, to save us from sin, and to restore his kingdom. It's to bring the world back into orientation of love. This is the gospel of the angels and the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And when the shepherds hear this news... It is such big news, it is such good news that when they hear it, they immediately leave to go see Jesus, to confirm that this news is true. And then when they confirm that the news is true, it says in verse 20 this, the shepherds returned home, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, because everything happened just as they had been told. Worship, in this moment, is what the shepherds leave doing. They worship as they leave. And worship is the response to good news. Because it is what happens when life is realigned around God and God's love. N.T. Wright says it again this way. Humans are made to worship. That's what it means to be an image bearer. Worship is a matter at gazing with delight, gratitude, and love at the Creator in expressing praise in wise and articulate speech. Those who do this are formed by God's creative and sustaining love. They become generous, humble stewards through whom God's love is released into the world. This is how things were meant to be. And Jesus takes us back from where we presently are to that intended goal. The shepherds hear the news and they receive the gift and it leads to a life of worship, of being reoriented, re-centered, and redrawn into to the very purposes that God has for them. And after this experience, they go home doing what? Declaring or letting loose God's love everywhere they go. Missio, we are like the shepherds, invited to hear this news today. The good news of Jesus, who is born Savior and King, who comes to free us from our sins, to realign the world, our hearts, and all that is in it with love. We're invited to hear that news and to receive it, to hear that Jesus has come to bring us back to love, and restore his kingdom. 
but it is a gift. And there's two sides to any gift story. There is the story of it being given, and then it becomes the story of reception. And I believe that God is non-coercive, that God never forces someone to receive a gift. Jesus is born in ultimate vulnerability. It's a testament to the kind of gift that's being given. One that is of love, for love. And so the shepherds get to do what they want with the gift. And I think the same is true for us today, that we get to do what we want with the gift. God does not coerce us or force us. That cannot be how gifts work. So, Missio, how do we respond to the gift that's given this Advent season? How do we respond to the gift of Jesus to us this Advent season? Maybe the next question that you have to ask is if you say, like, I would like to respond to the gift of Jesus, then what does that do? Well, I think it realigns our lives with love, and then it sends us out of this place with a new mission to let loose God's love in the world around us. That's what it means to be saved from sin to a kingdom. We're brought back to love, to let love loose in the world around us. So, Missy, if you say yes to the gift of Jesus, which I think is a, a thing that we do once, but it's also a thing that we're doing all the time, receiving anew. That's why we do Advent over and over again, because we can get tired of the gift. We can get accustomed to the gift. We need to be reminded again that the gift has value. And so no matter how many times you've said yes, no matter how many times you've received the gift, Missy, would you ask yourself again, what does it mean for me to receive and respond to the gift, to know myself as a recipient of this gift, and what might it do in my life? How might it send me out of this place? How might I go home with this gift? Missy, let's pray. Jesus, today we thank you that you have given yourself to us. Again and again and again. The story of Advent reminds us that you come to us in vulnerability. You come to us without coercion, without force, in the name of love, for the purpose of love. So Jesus, today as we hear that story again, would it speak some new, deeper part of us? Spirit, would you awaken something in us? Would we know this gift is truly valuable? And would we respond and receive the gift of you? Because now we know what it means to be saved from sin. To be reoriented, realigned, drawn back to love, and called into a life of living in and with and for your love. So God, help us to receive it, to know it, and to live in light of your gift today. In your name we pray. Amen.